Good morning, everybody. I'm Ty. What a pleasure to meet you. Good morning, everybody else. Hi. It's good to be here with you. Uh, were you blessed by those, those worship songs? What? Just such a blessing. Um, about 500 years before the time of Christ, uh, 2,500 years ago, there was a group of Greek hippies with musical instruments that traveled all around the Greek world, singing songs, sitting around campfires, and philosophizing about the nature of reality. They were musicians, but they were also philosophers, these Greek hippies. And they noticed something about the universe as they spent time singing and then talking and singing and talking about what they saw around them, looking up into the night sky and looking at the world around them. They noticed something. They noticed that everywhere they looked, they were encountering math. Geometry. Everywhere they looked, math, math, and more math. And then, I don't know which one of these Greek hippies it was, but one of them said, wait a minute, we're surrounded with math, all of creation, all of nature, it's all math and math and more math. And then one of them said, oh, you know what I just noticed? Music is also math. And those Greek hippies came up with a theory that you have probably heard of that has come down to us for 2,500 years. They coined a term in the Greek, this is the English, and that term was, have you heard this term? The music of the spheres, speaking of the heavenly bodies, the music of the spheres, also the title of the most recent Coldplay album, by the way. The music of the spheres, right? They, they put the two together. They said, math, math is everywhere we look. And then music is math. So here was the theory. Here was the theory. They said, wait a minute. Maybe God sang the universe into existence. Maybe, just maybe. Well, if you look at the book of Job in chapter 38, Definitely the music part is there because it says that as God created the world, that all the sons of God and the stars of God shouted and sang for joy as the universe was created. So there was at a bare minimum a background track of angels singing when our world was created at, at a bare minimum. Do you know that the Bible explicitly, this isn't just something that's implied, the Bible explicitly says that God is a singer and a songwriter. Do you know this? In multiple places, I'll give you the most explicit. Zephaniah 3.17. The scripture literally says, he, that is Yahweh, will rejoice over you with singing. So God's a singer. Can you imagine the first Sabbath in the new heavens and the new earth, and you look at the bulletin. We probably won't have bulletins. We'll have perfect recall. There probably won't be any screens or anything. Can you imagine you look at the program and it says this Sabbath that uh, the sermon is going to be delivered by Jesus himself and his topic is Calvary. That's what we're talking about today. Can you imagine hearing 
a sermon from the crucified one himself on what it was like to hang between heaven and earth for our salvation. But then you notice it says that when Jesus is done preaching the Sermon on the Cross, special music will be brought to us today by God the Father, the Holy Spirit, and a choir of angels. Can you imagine? The Bible says God is a singer and a songwriter. Can you imagine? There is coming a day when we will literally hear with our ears the voice of Almighty God singing over us. It's going to be amazing. I hope you plan on being there. I plan on being there. It's going to be incredible. It's going to be incredible. So that has nothing to do with the message. So I just love music so much that I just thought I would share that with, with everybody who loves music. So, ah, okay. So now let's shift gears into the message. I remember vividly the day when my baby girl was born, my first baby girl. I have two daughters. I remember when, when Amber was born. She was supposed to be Zachariah. Um, we didn't do the whole ultrasound thing, so we had no idea of the gender. And so we didn't come up with a girl name because I was so sure. And she was born, and we called her Amber, and she was placed in my arms. Eight pounds and 10 ounces of pure blubber came out of my five foot, 208 pound wife. They placed that little girl in my arms. Baby Amber, I looked down into her beautiful blue eyes with her chubby, chubby cheeks, and something happened inside of me. Something transitioned. Somehow, as I held her in my arms, I knew that now that she existed, that I necessarily now loved somebody more than my own life. I knew that she now eclipsed all self-interest in principle. I was only 18 years old when she was born, so I was still a teenage boy. Some of y'all know what that means. I was ridiculous, to say the least, so I had to mature into this love. But it was there in embryonic form I knew, I looked into her eyes, and I knew I would die for that girl if I had to. This was, this was a major moment in my development as a human being. Something like that, but on a grander scale, is going on in the universe. I mentioned this in an earlier session. Let's bring it into this context. The Bible says God is love. That means, among other things, that God is absolute other-centeredness, pure self-giving expenditure for all others above and before himself. That's who God is. God is love. So that when God made us, made humans, the fact that God is love necessitates 
That the moment you began to exist, God knew that he loved you more than his own life. God knew that the potential for great pain and suffering lie in our creation. He knew that he was creating free moral agents with the capacity to love or not to love. Because God is love, God created free moral agents and to be free moral agents means, at a bare minimum, that I have agency. You have agency. I have the capacity, you have the capacity to literally say yes or no, even to God. And God knew that our freedom potentiated great bliss and ecstasy and glory and and it also potentiated great pain. And God took the plunge. He said, I'm going to go ahead and make them. I'm going to create free moral agents with the capacity to love like God loves. I'm going to go ahead and create them. And I'm going to take the risk that they might say no to me. And if they say no to me, I will remain faithful to them at any cost to my self. Because there is an integrity in God that is an integration in God's love. And that integrity is articulated for us in what is called the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4. This prayer for thousands of years has been spoken in Jewish synagogues around the world. In fact, on this very day, Shabbat, all over the world right now, in the time zone where Shabbat is occurring, this declaration, this declaration about the fundamental nature of God and of reality is on the lips of Jewish persons around the world today. It is called the Shema from the first word of the prayer. Hear, listen. That's the Hebrew word Shema. This is a prayer that is to be spoken in the congregation, that is to be spoken in the congregation for everyone to hear every Sabbath. The Lord, our God, the Lord is one. It's that word one that we're interested in at this moment. The Lord, our God, the Lord is one. The word Lord, which occurs twice in the text, is Yahweh, the singular name for God. The word God is Elohim, the plural name for God that we discovered in a previous session. I can't remember which one. There's too many of these. The Lord, Yahweh, our Elohim, Yahweh, is one. Singularity, plurality, singularity, one. Are you tracking with the cadence of the declaration? Now, the word one is the Hebrew word ikad. Everybody say ikad. Okay, so it's the word ikad, and 
This is one of two words that the prophet could have used for this particular word because there's, a, there's another word in Hebrew for one, and that is yakid. Ikad, yakid. What's the difference between the two? Ikad is numeric, excuse me, yakid is numeric one, like single, solitary item, right? Ikad is compound union. Multiple parts that create some kind of one, like a ballpoint pen, for example, right? There's the there's a button part at the top, there's the cylinder thingy, there's the other thingy in the middle. All these things have names, I don't know what their names are. And you can click it and you can write with it. But, but the only way the thing is the thing is if all the parts are present and operable. It's a single solitary mechanism. It's a, it's a pin, it's one thing, but it's multiple parts that compose the one thing. That's ikad, ikad union of some kind. So the same word, to give you a sense of the context here, the same word in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, describing the union of the man and the woman is used when it says that a man shall leave his father and his mother and, and be joined to his wife, and the two, the two, how many are there? We can count them. One, two, Adam, Eve, the man and the woman. There's two of them. But the two shall become What's the word? Take a guess. Yakid or ikad? Ikad. The two shall become one. That is, there are two, but there's a mysterious level. There's some kind of level on which the two compose a single unit. One. It's ikad in this text as in the Shema. So the Shema is telling us something like this. That 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 God, just draw an imaginary circle in your mind, and this circle is God, okay? Within divinity itself, apart from any creation, any material creation, strip reality down to its non-created, uncreated, self-existent reality. We call that God. Within the parameters of our circle, God, there's no humans, there's no angels, there's no planetary system, nothing. Just all there is is God in this illustration. Within the parameters of God and God alone, there is both self and other. Both self and other. We could say it like this for the sake of illustration. The Father is an individual self to which the Son and the Spirit are two others. Are you tracking with me? The Son is an individual self to which the Spirit and the Father are two what? What am I going to say? Others. And the Holy Spirit is an individual self to which there are two others. So within the parameters of divinity itself, both self and other. Nothing's been created as of yet. And the reality of both self and other is present. So we could say it like this, kind of a, 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 a homiletical translation of the Shema. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. 
we could say things like this and be theologically accurate to the intent of the text. God is oneness, not one as in singularity. God is oneness as in multiple parts that are composing a singularity. God is union. God is togetherness. God is harmony. God is relationship. God is some kind of community. One scholar has put it like this, quote, God is a communitarian being. God exists in communion, in relationship, in fellowship, right? This is God. Now, Jesus comes into the world and he makes this astounding claim, which would have been blasphemous, offensive to all Jewish ears. Jesus lands on the scene and he says, uh, by the way, I and my father are one. Now, the New Testament is in Greek, and so it's not the Hebrew word ikad, but Jesus is Hebrew and he is deliberately lifting the concept of Shema and applying it to himself and the Father. He's literally interpreting the Shema for us. He's saying that thing that we say, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, well, the Father and I are that. We're oneness, we're harmony, we're togetherness. That is then followed up by Jesus when he describes remarkably what he's looking for among us with one another and in relation to him and to God in general. He prays that they, that would be you and me and the disciples historically, locally at that time, but by ex logical extension down through history, all of us, Jesus prayed that, that they all may be one. As you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us. Why? That the world may believe that you sent me, that I'm from you. Now watch this, watch this. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them that they may be one just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they all, that they may be made perfect, or the word here would be better translated mature, in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me, and check this out, have loved them as you have loved me. You guys, Jesus literally says straight up, he says that God loves you. God loves me with the same quality of love with which the Father loves the Son and the Son loves the Father. The, the, same, the same thing that's going on within the triune God itself, the same relational dynamic that is happening there is the same quality of love with which God loves you 
with which God loves me. And the plan of salvation, watch where Jesus goes with this, the plan of salvation is in a sense the reinduction of human beings into the inner circle of the divine fellowship. Watch this, watch this. Oh, righteous Father, he closes his prayer. The world has not known you, but I have known you. And this is amazing. These have known, my followers. Do you know? Do I know? Do we know this? Do we know that you sent me? Jesus will say this over and over again in various ways. He will say, for example, back in chapter 14, if you have seen me, you've seen the Father. I am a perfect embodiment and reflection of the love that is in the Father. Oh, righteous Father, the world doesn't know you, but I know you, and these know that you sent me, so I'm praying they connect the dots, that they realize that that I'm like you and you're like me, so when they encounter me, they're encountering you in character. Now watch this, watch this. And I have declared to them your name, that is God's character, and I will declare it that, or so that, or in order that, the love with which you, Father, have loved me may be in them and I in them. (laughs) Jesus, this is amazing. Jesus just said, the whole point of my mission to planet Earth into the human race is so that they can begin to love again like we love. Within within the parameters of the relationship that exists between the Father and the Son and the Spirit, biological extension, if you look at the broader context back into chapter 14 and chapter 16 of John. Jesus, the Son of God, who's somebody that in some sense is God, according to the anti-Trinitarian perspective, which shows up in Jehovah's Witness, Mormonism, Unitarianism, and some places around the edges of Adventism. The anti-Trinitarian view says that God the Father is alone, ultimate God, and Jesus was in some sense actualized, begotten, created, Some don't like the word created, so they go with begotten in order to give it a different nuance. But the point is the same. All there was was God, a singularity, a single solitary self, not a union, not a togetherness. All there was was God as a rigid self, a rigid singularity, and then God actualized some other being that somehow partakes of the divine essence as if, by the way, this logically leads to pantheism because if God can actualize in any way some other being and render that being divine, then what's to stop any of us from being actualized as divine in some sense, logically speaking? So if the one dying on the cross is any less than God and God himself, then essentially what's happening at Calvary is not that God is love and therefore God is making the sacrifice, but rather that God is requiring 
the sacrifice of some other for our salvation. Paul goes on and says, but the one who was equal with God made himself of no reputation. What does that mean? Hold on to the words no reputation. Taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Jesus, God became human. The one equal with God became human in order that he might suffer and die at Calvary for us. He made himself as a voluntary act. He made himself of no reputation. The, word no re the two words no reputation are the single Greek word kenosis. It's a common Greek word. It just means to empty the contents out of something. If you have a glass full of a beverage and you dump it out on the ground, the receptacle is now empty. That's kenosis. It had something in it. Now that something has been dumped out. It is empty. The idea is empty. And so the ESV renders the text, he made himself of no reputation as he emptied himself in harmony with kenosis. Or as the NIV says it, he made himself nothing. Or as the Phillips translation renders it, he laid aside his divine prerogatives. What's the content that he emptied out of himself for you and me? There are three abilities or capacities that belong to God and God alone, to divinity and divinity alone, and do not belong to angels or humans. Omnipotence, omniscience, omnipresence. For all eternity past, Jesus in the form of one of the members of the Godhead possessed these capacities. When Jesus became human, he divested himself voluntarily of these omni-capacities. We know this from the gospel accounts. This will go by really fast, but all the proof is there, and I'll just say it in rapid-fire succession, and you can look at it yourself for the sake of time. With regards to omnipotence, Jesus said in John 5, verse 20, I can of mine own self do nothing. I just do what the Father empowers me to do is the point. So he's raising the dead, he's healing the sick, and he's saying, I'm doing these miracles by the omnipotence of the Father channeling through me as a human being because my own personal omnipotence is in remission. Jesus is described in Acts chapter 2 as doing many signs and wonders which God did through him. Again, He's not exercising his own personal omniscience because in the incarnation, he's laid it aside. What about omniscience? Well, Luke's gospel says that the child, speaking of God in the flesh, Christ, the child grew in stature. What does that mean? He grew up biologically. He went through puberty. He, he was a baby and he grew into a man. He grew in stature. He got taller. But then it says he grew in stature, but he also grew in wisdom and knowledge and favor with God and man. What does it mean to grow in knowledge, to grow in wisdom? It means to learn things you didn't know before. If his own personal omniscience was intact, it could not be said of him that he was engaged in an educational process. Mary sat Jesus on her knee and read Isaiah 53 to him and said, I think this has something to do with you. The very scriptures he inspired the prophets to write, he's now learning from his mother. Even as an adult, Jesus explicitly said he didn't have personal omniscience. He said, quote, no man knows the day nor the hour of the coming of the Son of Man, not even myself, but the Father only. Jesus literally said, there are things I don't know. 
like the time of my second coming, for example. The only way I can know that is if the Father tells me. The Father knows I don't know. That's an explicit statement. Even after his resurrection, Mary threw her arms around him and he said, detain me not, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. Jesus was not omnipresent at this point. He was not with the Father and with Mary simultaneously. He said, no, I need to travel through space to be with the Father. So, kenosis, Jesus emptied himself of these divine capacities. Why, why, why? In order that he might suffer an authentic self-sacrificing death at the cross of Calvary so that when Jesus hung between heaven and earth, now this is the punchline. We said everything that we've said so far in order to say this. When Jesus hung between heaven and earth, in a state of kenosis, emptied of his own divine capacities of omnipotence and omniscience and omnipresence. When Jesus hung between heaven and earth, he cried out in the agony of his tormented soul, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus felt the separation that sin ultimately makes between God and humans. He felt it to the depths of his own psychological processing. He hung alone between heaven and earth. And he felt what it feels like to be a sinner full of shame and guilt separated from the Father. Ellen White describes what happened at Calvary with these astounding words. She says that at Calvary, we witness the sundering of the divine powers. Divine powers are capitalized here because it's a reference to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The integrity of the oneness of God was broken up at Calvary. When he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus felt this massive psycho-emotional chasm between him and the Father and the Spirit. Father, Son, and Spirit, who had only ever known the integrity of their union with one another and their eternal fellowship, that was sundered, or, 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 or a synonym for, we don't use the word sundered anymore very much. It's the idea of severing or separating. God underwent a voluntary severing of God's own internal union to save us. He became human, and then he voluntarily underwent the full ramifications of sin and shame. He felt in his own conscience as if he were the guilty party in every sin ever committed by human beings. Jesus bore the sin of the whole world upon his conscience as if he were the guilty party in every act of rape and child abuse, every war, every holocaust, every whispering gossip in a church foyer, every selfish impulse, every greedy desire for gain at the expense of somebody else, all oppression and servitude, Jesus felt in his conscience as though he were the guilty party that committed the sins that you and I are guilty of. He took that upon himself voluntarily and he felt the separation. My God, my God, where are you? 
Just moments ago, we were in fellowship and now you're gone. He felt the separation that sin makes between God and man. In the book, Desire of Ages, Ellen White describes this psychological phenomenon like this. The Savior, while hanging on the cross of Calvary, could not see, that is, he couldn't perceive through the portals of the tomb. That is to say, he couldn't see life for himself beyond the grave. This is the same one who had just recently prophesied of his own resurrection a minimum of three times. He told his disciples repeatedly, I'm going to die, but I'll rise again. They didn't get it. They didn't believe him. But he prophesied of his resurrection. But when he prophesied of his resurrection, it's very interesting. This is John chapter 10. He said, no man takes my life from me. I lay it down of myself. I have the power to lay it down and I have the power to take it up again. This is what the Father has told me. What? So he doesn't know about his resurrection by his own personal omniscience? No. He says, I'm going to be resurrected. How do I know? Because the Father told me. It'd be very similar if I said to you, hey, hey, if you die, will you be resurrected at the second coming? If you're a Seventh-day Adventist, you would say, yes, I will be. And I'll say, how do you know? And you say, well, because God has told me so in the promises of Scripture. Jesus knows he will be resurrected, and then he doesn't know. As sin and shame come in upon his conscience with a sense of darkness and separation from the Father and the Spirit, he is utterly and completely alone in the universe. And the darkness, the psychological horror of our sin is so deep and dark and dense that he cannot see life for himself beyond the grave for a sustained period of time. The Savior could not see through the portals of the tomb. She goes on, hope did not present to him his coming forth from the grave as a conqueror or tell him of the Father's acceptance of the sacrifice. He feared that sin was so offensive to God that there separation would be eternal. Jesus literally stared down eternal death and kept trudging forward for you and me. He had told Peter earlier, put your sword away. Peter, don't you know that if I wanted to, I could call to my father and he would forthwith send me 12 legions of angels to deliver me. Put your sword away, Peter. I don't need you to defend me with violence because all I need to do is speak the word and I would be evacuated from this situation. Jesus died the voluntary death of love. He literally faced the prospect of his own personal eternal extinction, which in Adventist theology is called the second death. It's a different subject, but related. He stared down his own personal, eternal death. And he said, if that's what it costs, if that's what it costs, if, if that's what it costs, I will die forever if that's what's necessary for them to be saved. We can hardly even process what that would mean. But it means something like this. God would rather die forever than to live without you, without me. In Christ, we witness the most astounding revelation of the love 
of God that has ever been disclosed to thinking minds and feeling hearts. Can you see it? Can you feel it? Do you know at the bedrock level of your being that you are the object of an insatiable love that will not let you go?